Welcome back to Exploring the Rings. This is Coriolis, Exploring the Lord of the Rings. We're not just going to explore the rings. We're going to explore the entire Lord of the Rings story, not just part of the title. Good evening, everybody. So this is Coriolis and the Tolkien Professor, uh, and this is session number 219 of Exploring the Lord of the Rings. Uh, as we resume, our, we didn't even get through the one slide last week looking at Boromir blowing his horn, um, which was super interesting, and I was uh, really excited about that. Um, uh, and we didn't get to Elrond's prophecy, so we're going to start with Elrond's prophecy this time, and then we will get back to the description of the company already in progress. But first, we have um, uh, a couple announcements. First quick announcement is just to remember our upcoming regional moots. I saw some of you guys chatting about this earlier on. We've got text moot coming up in a couple weeks on the what is it, the 26th of March, March 26th in Austin, Texas. And then we have Sunshine Moot happening down in Florida the next week on the 2nd of April. So I uh, strongly encourage folks to look into those. Um, I'm looking forward to uh, traveling to both of those places and getting to connect with folks again. Uh, it's been a long time since I've gotten to see some of you. So I'm uh, hoping, of course, we understand uh, that uh, you know it's you know, not best or not everyone's comfortable uh, traveling and being in mixed company these days, in which case we have our digital option available. Both are available for digital registration. So welcome uh, to all of you, uh, and please do check out our moots. The second thing is uh, a little thing I whipped together over the weekend. Um, a new weekly broadcast that I'm starting uh, to keep myself off the streets and out of the pool halls, and that is called Other Minds and Hands, an open and friendly discussion of Tolkien adaptation. Um, so uh, we're going to be talking, this is uh, going to be taking place on Wednesdays at 4 p.m., um, 4 p.m. Eastern Time. Um, so Europeans won't have to be waking up at, like, you know, before dawn, as those, there are, kind of, there are a couple uh, who often participate with us here in Exploring the Lord of the Rings, which is true dedication. Um, but this will be a little bit easier, of course. Um, and, uh, of course, I've, I've put together this broadcast. I mean, it's something I've been toying with the idea of for a while, and people have been asking me, like, are you going to do a show where you, you know, uh, talk about, you know, speculation and whatever about the Amazon adaptation and stuff? Um, so, I mean, I've been thinking about this and kind of working on this for a while. But, of course, I was um, primarily uh, pushed <laughs> to do this um, just because I really want there to be a good place for people to talk about this. There's a lot of anxiety out there, some of that anxiety expressing itself in more constructive ways than others. Um, and I get it. I totally understand. And Lupita exactly has been a bit toxic lately, and there's no need. Um, and I just, I don't know, I did a lot of reflecting on this over this weekend, um, because when I hear this, when I hear the shouting of the all the people who are shouting um, about the Amazon thing, like, I think that many of them 
probably most of them. I, I feel like I can guess at most of their ages. You know what I mean? Um, and I, I only say this. I'm, I'm not. And I'm not trying to say this to be uh, insulting or anything. It's just that those of us above a certain age, right? Those of us who are like over forty, basically, um, went through this already. You know, we went through this. Uh, before the Peter Jackson films came out. And I get it. I totally understand. I remember, you know, myself as a, uh, a you know, a young uh, Tolkien enthusiast who was very nervous about the, uh, about the Peter Jackson films coming out and, like, what would it do to Tolkien's legacy? What's going to happen? Like, what is going to happen, you know, if... He makes a hash of it, which seemed very likely. And of course, in some ways he did from a lore perspective. Now, fortunately, the movies were awesome, right? Uh, and that was a huge learning experience for me too. Um, but anyway, uh, it's, it's, and I'm saying, I, I remember all that. Like I, I, I remember all that and I sympathize with that. Um, but of course the big difference is that those of us who went through it the first time didn't have social media at the time. And so that anxiety didn't get expressed in the way that it is tending to be expressed now. Um, but um, anyway, yeah, so Gwesky says, I felt the same way worrying about the Bakshi film. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So anyway, the point is just that, and again, I'm not trying to slight anyone. I, the point is that I respect the viewpoints of the Tolkien fans, and of course, you know, a significant portion of the really toxic comments and things are not coming from people who are legitimate Tolkien fans. I don't mean they're illegitimate Tolkien fans. I mean, there are like professional troll bots out there that like just do this kind of thing. And I have no comprehension of the mindset of people who uh, either do this themselves or, or, you know, whatever. Like there are other people with other agendas that have nothing to do with, uh, with Tolkien and I have nothing to say to or about them. Um, Mostly because, as I say, they're an entire mystery to me, and I don't understand why anyone would dedicate their lives in that kind of a way. But, but what I, um, what I do understand, um, or mostly understand, again, can remember myself in my own experience. I can, I can, I can connect almost all of the violent negative reactions that Tolkien fans, and they clearly are Tolkien fans. Um, I mean, if you'd actually talk to them, and that's one I've been spending a lot of time over this past weekend uh, talking with many of the people who've been shouting at me uh, because I said good things about the Amazon show or that I things that I liked about it, um, or rather just because I didn't like shout negative things about it, people were shouting at me. Um, anyway, so we'll 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 talk about it. So I've it became really clear that we need. We need a, a positive space, right? We need a, a, an opportunity to sit down because what I kept finding, um, what I kept finding is that uh, almost every comment that was being made um, by these, you know, concerned, <laughs> violently concerned, often Tolkien fans, um, is that like there was it's not just that there was no response to it because I felt that they weren't listening and a lot of them certainly were not in a place where they wanted to listen. Um, but it was more than that. It was like, where do you even start? Like, we've got to take five steps back before we can even, uh, before we can even begin here uh, to have this conversation. Like, can we sit down? Like, before we even address, like, 
Anyway, sorry. I'm about to like start lecturing, and I, I can't. I should not do that. We'll save that for tomorrow. Um, uh, I'll talk more about this tomorrow. Anyway, the, suffice to say, um, there's a whole lot of ground that needs to be covered, and there's a lot of things that we need to kind of go through and work through, and I think that if we go through and think through things together, everybody can feel better about this. Because the fact is, um, again, those of us who have been around for a few decades, we've seen it happen, right? Um, I don't even remember the Bakshi films. Um, but, uh, but even for those of us not quite old enough to remember the Bakshi films, uh, when, the, when, the, when the Bakshi film came out, um, we've seen, like, we've seen what ha we've seen two very different scenarios now, right? We've seen what happens when, uh, like, what happens if they, like, do serious things and mess up the story and, 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 like, do horrible things with some of our favorite characters. We've seen that, right? What happens if they make a really, really good movie? We've seen that, right? What happens if they make a horrible movie? We've seen that. Right. Um, you know, and, and, and guess what? Like here we still are here. We still are in exploring the Lord of the Rings, talking about the Lord of the Rings as if the Lord of the Rings was not in fact, you know, altered or tainted by any of the things, good, bad, interesting, puzzling that Peter Jackson and his team ever did with the Lord of the Rings films. Right. Um, so, um, anyway, that's, um, that's where we are. Hang on a second. I'm gonna do a quick thing here. Ooh, hang on. I'm. Uh, I've been having some uh, peculiar issues of late, um, so I just need to pause for a moment because I need to. Uh, uh, my internet is doing weird things. I'm seeing again. Are you guys hearing me? Okay. You guys doing okay hearing me? Can you make out what I'm saying and all that kind of thing? Um, I want to make sure. I want to make sure that you can because I'm I'm getting uh, I'm getting signals that tell me that uh, things are a little bit odd. So just in case, I'm just setting up a quick backup recording so that we can I can have that at need. My apologies. Um, it's. Uh, been a peculiar thing. My internet connection is the peculiar thing that has been of late. So I'm trying to uh, trying to fix that. Okay. All right. Oop. Hang on. Okay. So there we are. Backup recording going on. Fine. 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 Okay. Excellent. Um. Anyway, so we'll. We'll talk more. We'll talk more tomorrow um, about adaptation. I'm looking. This is going to be a weekly discussion. As I say, it's going to start at 4 p.m. We'll probably go for about two hours um, on Wednesday afternoons. I'm going to be joined by uh, one of my colleagues at Signum, Maggie Park, the director of the Mythgard Institute, um, and she is an expert on adaptation. She's did her whole PhD on like fandom film adaptations and stuff. It's she knows lots and lots more than I do um, about adaptation and. Um, uh, you know how this stuff works. I'm looking forward to learning from her, and we're going to have a lot of discussions about what's going on here. Um, so uh, anyway, I encourage you to join us. Um, this is going to be broadcast on all the places that um, broadcasting now. Um, so you can join us on our Twitch channel. You can join us on our YouTube channel, um, and uh, that'll all be um, that'll all be 
That'll all be fine. That'll all be good. I'm not going to be on Discord because I'm going to have enough to pay attention to, I think, with like the one chat. Um, so I'm probably not going to be mo monitoring the Discord channel, but you'd be welcome if you wanted to chat with each other on the Discord channel during it. You certainly could, but I don't think I'm going to be able to monitor it because um, I'm going to be trying to monitor the chats from Twitch and YouTube and Twitter and Facebook as well. So that'll probably be enough to be going on with. All right. Anyway, let us move back into the text. So, um, Elrond begins a sentence in exactly the way that I always expect him to begin it, but then it goes sideways in a way which almost always surprises me, no matter how many times I read it. Um, we get the description of the sound of his horn, right? The echoes leapt from rock to rock, and all that heard that voice in Rivendell sprang to their feet. And we talked about that last time. And then Elrond says, slow should you be to win that horn again, Boromir. And from there, I always expect the, uh, uh, the sentence, like it would make perfect sense to me if he were to go on and say, you know, slow should you be to win that horn again until, you know, you're not trying to sneak out of Rivendell. When you're not standing in a secret valley whose location we try to not let everybody know about. Um, I mean, there are lots of ways in which he could go with that, which would follow up, you know, like basically, because I, I always read that first phrase um, as a sort of like, you know, you moron Boromir. Right? Like, do, what part of secret mission do you not understand? Right? Um, <laughs> yeah, dude, maybe chill, <laughs> says Bjarnasoner. Exactly. Um, um, but that's not what he says. Right? What sound, it's what sounds to me always like the setup to a rebuke. Right? Slow should you be to wind that horn again, Boromir. And indeed, you shouldn't have winded it even the first time, you idiot. Right? He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that at all. Slow should you be to win that horn again until you stand once more on the borders of your land and dire need is on you. Whoa. So it's advice. Don't blow it too often. Don't blow it too often until you stand once more on the borders of your land and dire need is on you. Instead of saying... It sounds like he's beginning off by saying, okay, um, let me give you some understated advice. On the secret mission, don't go around blowing your horn all the time. Can we agree on that, Boromir? Right? It sounds like that's the way, you know, he's telling him don't blow it. But then halfway through the sentence, he turns around and says, actually, you're, you're really going to want to blow that horn again. Um, there will come a point where you're going to want to blow that horn again. And it's going to happen when you're on the borders of your land and dire need is on you. Then you might, you might want to be thinking about that horn again, right? Um, and yeah, Alia Eru, it is really specific, really fast, right? That's, uh, I, I, as I said, that's why this sentence always, I, you know, I can read it a hundred times. I maybe have read it a hundred times now, and uh, and every time it's surprising. Like uh, that, that there's a, there's an intrinsic element of surprise I feel in that sentence, um, and um, 
I don't even know. I mean, of course, there's the 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 pivot in the middle of that sentence is so unexpected uh, that, and I'm not just unexpected in the sense that I don't know it, right? I mean, no matter how well I know it, it's still, it has that sense of unexpectedness to it, right? Um, and um, it gives me the impression that the sentence does not finish out the way that Elrond himself meant to finish it. I, mean, I don't know what he opened his mouth to say, right? But don't you get the impression that that wasn't what he opened his mouth to say? But once he had um, started <laughs> saying, you know, st started addressing Boromir and his horn, this comes out, right? Um, that's, again, the vague impression um, that, it, um, that, it gives, that it gives to me. Um, um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and Alex, welcome, by the way, Alex. Good to, uh, good to see you caught up with us. Um, uh, foresight out of spite. Yeah, almost, almost. I mean, I don't think this is like a, like a retributive prophecy, right? Like, well, since you were so rude, right? Um, then, uh, let me prophesy your death, right? Just to, just to, you know... <laughs> Top spin that one back to you, right? Um, that would be harsh, uh, right? Um, but um, yeah, <laughs> force bite. That would be called force bite, uh, Drasnak. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, yeah, he just lapses into prophecy. Exactly, exactly, Ray. That's exactly what it sounds like. Um, yeah, yeah. Now, Rachel is saying, in Boromir's mind, it's not a secret mission. He's quite open and clear that his purpose is to go back to Minas Tirith. That's true. And that's what I was suggesting last time, Rachel, when I was saying that I think that there is... I believe that in this passage we can actually see some... some Dissension might be a strong word. Um, but division, right? Boromir is not on board. Um, he is acting out here. He knows it's supposed to be a secret mission, but he's not on a secret mission. And what's more, he doesn't want it to be a secret mission. Um, he doesn't feel like it needs to be a secret mission. They should be marching straight back and openly to Minas Tirith with the ring. That's obviously the thing to do that they should be doing. And they're only doing something else, you know, this secret mad mission to Mordor, uh, because he was outvoted. Um yeah, no, that definitely seems like that there. Um, but, um, yeah. So, um, Stevigans, I, it is possible to read it not as a prophecy, but as a description of where it should be used. I mean, like, sure, when you are on the borders of your land and dire need is on you is a good example of when, like, that's the appropriate occasion. Right, setting out on a secret journey not appropriate. Uh, being on the borders of your land and dire need being upon you appropriate. Right, let's let's you know um, learn some basic horn etiquette here, Boromir. Right, um, it, it, I mean it's not that that doesn't work, um, but again it's awfully specific. Right, it's uh, if so one the one reason I'm not comfortable with um, uh, with sort of resting on that reading is that again it's really it's not designed for the borders of the land, right? I mean, the number one job for that horn is, I mean, if he had said something like, slow should you be to win that horn again um, until you stand once more at the head of your army, uh, you know, like at the walls of Minas Tirith or something, that would be like, okay, like inappropriate, appropriate, right? That would 
makes sense. Um, but that's not what he says. Like, the, being on the borders of the land and dire need being on him. I mean, again, like, yeah, that would be a fit scenario for it, surely. But, um, but a little oddly specific, right? And, of course, not only is it oddly specific, but, of course, it's very conspicuously... Um, foretelling his death, right? I mean, he will be on the borders, the very borders of his land, um, and dire, very dire need indeed will be upon him. Um, we know, of course, especially upon a second or third reading, that that is exactly, he is going to be sounding his horn then. And it's like in this moment, Elrond is hearing himself, the echoes of that horn, those horn blasts that uh, Boromir is going to be blowing um, and you know, which will, I was about to say, which will not be heated, except that's not true. They'll be heated all over the place. In fact, I, I think they're being heated right now. Um, um, yeah, yeah. Now, I know it's not the next time that he will sound it. It is true. He will sound it in Moria. Um, when you're being attacked by a Balrog is another good time uh, to sound the horn. I, I think we could add that to the appropriate list, right? Um, but, um, yeah. Now, Mudmore, we don't know if Elrond's foretellings are often a surprise to him. Um, he sounds like he's often under in control of them. Um, you know, when he says out east, my knowledge fails and things like that. Right. That that uh, um, he seems like he's uh, you know, he's not like waiting for something to strike him. Right. You know, for like to, like that's that's not the way he that doesn't seem to be his his affect, you know, his kind of attitude about that. Um, but um but I would say, I think we can see other examples of foretelling coming upon people. In fact, it seems to me that the majority of the time somebody has a foretelling in The Lord of the Rings, it's unpremeditated. Um, rather than being like, hmm, let's see, can I tell anything about the future here? Uh, yeah, okay, I, I got this, uh, I got that. Uh, like it's just not how it happens, right? They're talking, and then they say something, and it's like, okay, right? Like, you know, when uh, you know, Aragorn's parting words to Aemir um, at the um, um, at the Hornburg, right, are unpremeditated, right? The business about all the foes, all the, the you know, the, the hordes of Mordor, uh, lying between them, that that's not a premeditated uh, foretelling on his part, right? He's just sort of like saying goodbye, and then he's he makes a prediction, right? Um, yeah, for Thoughtless, as I think most of Aragorn's foretellings are outright subconscious. Very possibly so. Very possibly so. We'll see it again later in this chapter. Uh, Anduril will... Uh, Anduril. I'm looking at the word Anduril. Aragorn will have um, another... Foretelling, he will another foretelling. Has he had one yet? I don't think he's had any yet. Has he? Um, I think he will have what will be his first foretelling of the Lord of the Rings <clears throat> later on in this chapter. Um, but um, yeah, so I, I think that that does seem to be a, you know whether or not it's Elrond's normal mo, we don't know for sure. Um, it does sound like he, if there is any character who does kind of routinely establish, you know, like do that kind of thing. Um, I, I would nominate Elrond, right, as the most likely. Um, I would vote for Elrond for most likely to prophesy with premeditation. Um, but nevertheless, we don't really see him doing it. Um, I don't think we do. Um, yeah, 
I wonder. So, Anna, I was just thinking about that today, about him sending, wanting to send Mary and Pippin back to the Shire. Um, my heart warns me, that business, that, you know, the my heart warns me about Pippin, right? I mean, you know, if your heart warns you about Pippin, it's, you know, I think we can all understand that. But, um, yeah, my heart is against his going. Right, exactly. Um, but even there... That's less a premeditated prophecy and more of a um, articulation of a conviction, a spontaneous conviction that he has. And I don't necessarily mean it has to be spontaneous in that moment, right? But again, I don't think he's necessary. It's a, yeah, yeah. It's more of I have a bad feeling about this. Exactly, exactly, um, exactly. Um, yeah. Oh, Jackie, my heart is against sounds like feeling and not sight. Yeah, it's complicated. It's complicated. We've um, been having a lot of conversation about this exact passage, in fact, uh, in uh, the Nature of Middle-Earth discussion, um, where we get a whole bunch of Tolkien talking about what that word heart means to elves and stuff. And so he did a lot of further thinking and sort of retconning about those exact passages and how foresight and foretelling works. Um, the distance between foretelling, that is like an actual prophecy of the future in which you are stating with certainty a thing that definitely happens and forecasting when you are just using your own reason and predicting what you think is very likely to occur and then it turns out to be correct, right? Um, and uh, this is something that, yeah, yeah, um, Dan, exactly. Dan says Elrond has facts and intelligence to suggest that the Shire might be in danger in the future. He doesn't need foresight. Exactly. He could be, again, to use the vocabulary that Tolkien introduces in the Nature of Middle-Earth passages we've been discussing recently, he, he could be forecasting there instead of actually foretelling, right? And in fact, the more I think about it, um, the clearest indicator, like the clearest mark how do you tell the difference between when someone is just predicting based on the fact that they know a lot and are very wise, right? And so they can make a pretty good guess about what's going to happen under certain circumstances, right? Um, the way to tell the difference between forecasting and foretelling, honestly, it seems to me that that spontaneity, that like unexpected utterance that comes upon you, that's kind of what I would look for as the clearest evidence Okay, this is not a forecast, right? This is not somebody who's been mulling it over and saying, I think this is likely to be what happens, right? But instead is just like, I've just said that's going to happen and all right, I, okay. That's, I guess that's what's going to happen then, right? Um, um, yeah, and Evil Dr. Ken and I agree that he's right, that it would have been good to send Mary and Pippin back. Uh, Evil Dr. Ken, the reason I was thinking about that um, is that uh, in my, I've been rereading The Lord of the Rings again myself recently, and I just did the Mirror of Galadriel uh, earlier this evening while I was doing dishes, and um, uh, got to the reference where Sam says, um, when he sees the vision of the Shire and Ted Sandman cutting down trees uh, and such, um, that uh, Elrond knew what he was about when he wanted to send Mr. Mary back. Um, doesn't mention Pippin, but we'll get there. Um, anyway, anyway, yeah, it's not an oracular trance, but it's it's more like what you know. Uh, uh, Ray's parallel 
to Professor Trelawney in Harry Potter is closer, I think, than something like the Oracle of Delphi. Um, I think there we see uh, J.K. Rowling invoking the same kind of concept, um, uh, you know, maybe thinking of Tolkien's uh, uh, foretellings there. But um, uh, anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, no, no, hang on. So no, I'm, not, I'm not at all saying that... Uh, yeah, I, sorry, didn't mean to open the Merry and Pippin can of worms there. Of course, Gandalf is... You may remember ahead that Gandalf is going to be super smug. Uh, he's going to have that moment. It's like smug is the only word I can think of where he's going to um, be all like, I was right. Good thing Merry and Pippin came. Right. Um, but uh, but the, the point is, and I think this was Dan's point before, um, that it's, it's reasonable. Like, he has good reason to say that. He's not wrong that Merry and Pippin going back to the Shire would have been good for the Shire. It is possible that things in the Shire might have gone differently had Merry and Pippin gone back instead of going on. That's not to say that, like, it's what they ought to have done. Or that he had a foretelling that said they should go back or something like that. No, it's just saying that he's probably right. He's probably right that had they gone back to the Shire, they could have done. They could have done good. Uh, they could have helped. Probably. I, I think I, I. I am willing, perfectly willing to believe, that Elrond's heart is telling him something that's quite, quite true. Um, but there are other things, as well. Um, anyway, okay. Um, back to the. I still call it prophecy because, again, he's. We know. We know. Because we've read the book before, that he is specifically foretelling here, the scene or foreseeing in a sense the scene of Go of Boromir's death. Now, the first time we read this, as first time readers, we don't know that. Um. As a first time reader. It's simply puzzling. And here I go back to the observation that we made before. The puzzling specificity of it, right? We are prepared here. We as readers are being prepared for Boromir's death, right? When it happens. Um, until you stand once more on the borders of your land and dire need is on you. And remember... Remember, because it's really easy to forget, and this is, here's a long-term consequence of the Peter Jackson films for you. It doesn't destroy the books, but this is, uh, there are a handful of ways, a handful of ways. Um, you know, people who make mistakes are like, you know, misattribute mis like a movie quote to Tolkien or whatever. Um, that kind of, mistakes like that happen all the time. But there are a few things there are a short number of things in which I think the Peter Jackson films have really um, made it harder, actually, to remember. And the number one, th possibly the top of my list, would be the timing of the death of Boromir. Boromir does not die in the Fellowship of the Ring. Boromir does not, does not die in the Fellowship of the Ring. Um, Boromir dies in the Two Towers. Um, and the choice of Peter Jackson and company to put the death of Boromir at the end of the Fellowship of the Ring. Totally understandable from a film standpoint. It made for a 
a really powerful ending to that first film. But it's not how it happens in the book. That is not the arc that book two is working towards. It's instead the place where book three is going to begin, right? Um, and I think there are several really important effects of that, right? But um, uh, with Elrond here, therefore, um, this is an ominous foretelling, and you're right, Vardendil, we don't even, oh, sorry, who is, oh yeah, Two Juice Man was saying we don't even see Boromir's last stand in the book, and you're right. Vardendil, I agree with you that the horn is a spiritual attack weapon. Um, it raises the courage of friends and strikes fear into the hearts of foes. It absolutely does, which is why also, again, like when being attacked by a Balrog is another really great time uh, to sound your horn. So long as, you know, Balrog has already spotted you, like as long as somebody already like threw a rock down a well or something, um, then you're pretty much in the clear uh, at that point. Um, but um, anyway, yeah. Steve Higgins, I agree. It's on the low end of Jackson's offenses. I don't even count it, count it an offense. It was a brilliant choice. It was a brilliant choice. I 100% support that um, as an adaptation. Um, I cited it because people legitimately forget. Like if people who haven't read the book in a while will legitimately forget that Boromir did not die in the, in the Fellowship of the Ring. Like that's just, it's one of the things which I have found over the years talking to people works backwards into the books most persistently. Um, uh, a thing that Jackson changed, which people forget is a change at all, right? It's, it's near the top of that list for me. And again, it's not, it's, not, it's not hideous by any means, but it does introduce a significant, um, um, a significant change uh, in, the, uh, uh, in, the, in the sort of the thematic impact of that thing. But again, here's... Here's the point, though. Where does this... How does this set us up? At the end of book two, we will still not have seen the fulfillment of this, right? But we will be on the borders of his land, right? There is an ominousness to this. We don't know that it foretells his death specifically, but he does talk about dire need, right? And there they are in, at the end of the Fellowship of the Ring, they are on the borders of Boromir's land. These words are going to be half fulfilled by the end of book two, right? But the dire need hasn't come yet and the horn hasn't been blown, right? I mean, if this prophecy by... Elrond is, you know, the the pistol uh, on the mantelpiece, right? It's not been fired yet uh, by the end of by the end of the book, right? By the end of book two, um, and I just I find that a really a really interesting thing. And and the more if we notice this, right? If we really know, and again, and I'm thinking here again, especially from that first time reading perspective, right? What is the effect that Elrond's words here have? Um, we need to think about that on a couple different levels. We need to think about what do they suggest to us who know the book, right? Um, and who know exactly what he's pointing to. We need to think about how they impact us as readers reading the story for the first time. Um, you know, within the, the, the 
scope of the narrative itself, right? As it unfolds just from one end to the next and not circling back again, what is the effect of those? But then third, within the story, what is the effect of... What effect do they have on Boromir? What does Boromir hear here? Um, what does Boromir hear here? So, um, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, and uh, <laughs> spiritual horns. Yes, um, I agree. Um, that's really cool. I love that. So I would put that in the category, the first category that I mentioned. That is the significance that this line has to us as people who know the story and have and are rereading it, right? Um, and Spiritual Horn says, this first winding of the horn is a sign of concern. It's a red flag about Boromir's character, right? Um, or at least, if not a red flag about his character, that might maybe be overstating it, but... Um, it is at the very least a an indicator that he is not on board, right? That he is not um, marching in step with everybody else. That there's potentially trouble there. That he, Boromir, is likely to be a you know a locus of trouble in the company as they move forward. We're seeing that from literally from moment one here, right? But as um, the spiritual horns of Ambrosius w uh, was saying, if this first winding is a sign of concern, the last winding is part of his redemption. Yeah, it is. It is. And that... One way, therefore, that we can think about Elrond's prophecy here is that Elrond's prophecy frames... provides a frame, essentially. Beginning point and end point, right? For Boromir's entire character arc. From this point, we've been introduced to Boromir. We've learned some things about Boromir. In general, I generally good, as I've said. I, I, I've been trying to. Um, I think that we've seen Boromir perform very well in many ways uh, throughout the council. Interruptions aside, um, or rather, the, the fact of interruption aside, um, he certainly felt justified in his interruptions. But anyway. Um, But for us, for his role in the company, for his active portion of this, this is really the beginning of his active involvement in the story. He's involved in the in the council, right? Um, but remember, we were still getting introduced to him, essentially. I mean, we saw him in the council, but remember the whole, like, you know, he is a valiant man, right? The, um, Boromir is coming, but don't think that's weird just because he's a random stranger from abroad, right? No, he's cool. Um, we were, you know, he. We're still talking about him in that way because he's not. He's not been a part of the story yet. Now he is, and the beginning of his part of the story is a little ominous, a little bit ominous. And so we do get this looking forward, to this glance forward at the end of his story, and Elrond sees the whole scope of it. Um, I wonder. Maybe he opens his mouth to chide Boromir. And then the foretelling comes upon him and he's, <laughs> he just, until you stand once more on the borders of your land. And I, I, I could even imagine like the tone of his voice changing over the course of this sentence. Slow should you be to win that horn again, Boromir, until you stand once more on the borders of your land and dire need is on you. Never mind. You're, it's, you're fine. Like, I'm, 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 I'm not going to yell at you. 
Um, like he realizes, I don't even, I'm sure to what extent he realizes that he's prophesying Boromir's death there. Um, is he softening it? You know, could we even insert a pause where that comma is, a more significant pause? Until you stand once more on the borders of your land and dire need is on you. Did he, in fact, foresee more than dire need? Did he see anything of how dire that need was going to be? And then he softens it? I don't know. I don't know. Um, but Elrond does seem to have this glimpse of it. And, and we're given it. We as readers are given it. We can appreciate it fully when we've read it before. When we're reading it the first time, we can't. But I think we have to have if we're paying attention, a nervous feeling when we get to Parth Gala, right? And they start talking about like, yeah, so this is like basically the borders of Gondor, right? If we've been paying attention, we should be, un we have cause to be uneasy, right? Um, and I think that's the interesting effect. A really interesting, especially the way in which that is still hanging above us at the end of book two. Frodo, I mean, on the one hand, it looks like the worst thing, right? I mean, we see him attack Frodo and try to take the ring from him. Like, that's real. Boromir has fallen, right? Boromir has fallen. Um, but Elrond's prophecy still has not come true. So on the one hand, when they get to Parthgalen, it's like um, uh, it's like a, a um, I guess I say it's very ominous, but at the same time, it's almost potentially like a relief as well. Um, ominous when they get there, but then when the book ends, and it seems that the worst has happened, and yet the dire need hasn't come yet. Right? We know there's more to come. We know there's more to come. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, cool. All right, sorry. Lots of comments that I know I'm missing here. Um, okay. Um, Yeah, Matt, I was just going to come back to that, and then I was going to leave this slide at last. Um, Matt says, The reading of a change of tone changes the meaning of maybe. It shifts from a dismissal to an acceptance of the doom that has been spoken. Yeah, yeah. I, that's what I was, the last thing I was going to come back to, was Boromir's maybe, right? Um, because that bears on the third question I was asking. That is, how do we hear this as rereaders of the story? How do we hear this as new readers of the story? But then, how do the characters in the story hear this? What does it mean to Boromir? What Elrond says. And his answer is, maybe. Maybe. But always I have let my horn cry at setting forth. Um, and Matt, I can hear both of those things. Both of those things. Um, dismiss dismissiveness 
Maybe. Whatever. Always I have let my horn cry at setting forth. And though hereafter we may walk in the shadows, I will not go f I will not go forth as a thief in the night. Um, it does sound dismissive in that way, of Elrond, potentially. But I think we can hear. If, it be, if, if it's clear to the people listening to Elrond that something just happened in the middle of that sentence, that that sentence did not end the way that it looked like it was going to end, right? Um, if that really has become clear to everybody standing there, and Boromir notices it, right? Ooh, uh, hey, did Master Elrond, did you just lapse into prophecy mode there? Right? Was that you foretelling something? In which case, what does he do? I agree with you, Matt. He accepts it. He accepts the doom. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, maybe I will be in dire need when I stand once more on the borders of my land. And I'll be sounding my horn again under emergent circumstances rather than ceremonial circumstances, as I'm doing here. Maybe. Maybe I will. But, nevertheless, always have I let my horn cry at setting forth. And I'm not going to not do it now. Just because you want me to walk like a thief in the night. Um, I agree, Green Great Dragon, that Boromir is not a coward. Um, and I think that we can see him accepting. Um, accepting Boromir. Accepting... The prophecy is not so explicit that he's going to freak out about it, right? Um, you know, he's not like, until you stand once more on the borders of your land and have five arrows bristling out of your chest, right? It is, it's not that kind of prophecy. Um, but, um, you know, might doom come later? Um, will there come a time when he is on the borders of his land and dire need is on him? What could be likelier? Boromir accepts that. But it also doesn't affect him now, right? Uh, doesn't change his... And notice his whole statement about always have I let my horn cry at setting forth is in response to slow should you be to wind that horn again. And the implied rebuke in it. El Elrond is very tactful here. He doesn't say Boromir, you moron. Um, or thanks a lot, Boromir, for that. Right? He doesn't say any of those things that he. I think he could say. He doesn't say any of those things. Um, but Boromir hears it. I think Boromir hears the rebuke at the beginning. But I, and I think he's unmoved by the prophecy at the end. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, no, Mister Bigga, I don't think it would deter him from blowing the horn if he knew it would mean his death. Um, yeah, no. No, I don't think so. Um, yeah, and I agree. He could accept that, accept the fact that he would be uh, uh, possibly in dire need and if he, standing on the borders of his realm, um, uh, mad violinist, as you say, uh, even without perceiving it to be prophetic. Um, yes, yes. Um, but, um, yeah, anyway... 
I'm not trying. I so the last thing I want to say. Okay, I said that was the last thing. That was almost the last thing. It's the penultimate thing that I wanted to say. Here's the last thing I want to say on this slide. Um, I don't want anybody to think I'm trying to bash Boromir here um, in pointing out what I believe to be evidence that Boromir is going to be a problem. Boromir is going to be a problem all the way through. There's not going to be a time when Boromir is no problem. I'm not saying he's always bad. I'm not saying that he never does anything good. But I'm just saying he's a problem. He's a leadership problem in this party. Um, uh, he is never 100% on board. Even with Gandalf. It's not just about Aragorn. Even with Gandalf. He is going to be the biggest pain in Gandalf's bottom uh, the entire time. Um, that, that, that anybody else... Uh, well, Pippin. Second biggest pain in Gandalf's bottom. Um, yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, <laughs> Charles Nick says, glad we're back to Gandalf's bottom. Exactly. One of our favorite topics of conversation. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Now, anyway, he's, he is, um, he's a problem. He's, he's not a bad guy. And I'm not saying this makes him a bad guy. And I'm not trying to like, again, I'm not trying to bash Boromir. Um, I think, I think very highly of Boromir. I've always liked Boromir and our, discussion of Boromir so far since we met him at the council has increased my opinion of Boromir. And I think that absolutely everything that we have observed about Boromir is perfectly consistent with his being um, an extremely admirable character all the way through. So I'm absolutely not um, uh, just saying he's horrible. But he's a problem. He's a, if you're trying to lead this party, um, he's a problem. If you are trying to move forward with the whole ring of power <laughs> destruction plan, he's a problem, right? There are several ways in which he is definitely a problem. Um, okay. Um, let's... Um, <laughs> yeah, kid, I like that. Um, uh, kid says, Boromir can't handle not being in charge, but being in dire need is just like a Wednesday, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, the idea that he would be in dire need, like near Gondor and in dire need, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, like every other day. Um, he can handle that. He's prepared for that. Even if it means the possibility of dying in battle to defend Gondor, what else is he for? Right? Boromir's completely ready for that. Um, and is certainly not going to be dissuaded by any prospect of that. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Oh, whoa, but I, I, I so agree. This is, uh, um, yeah, the idea that <laughs> Tolkien doesn't make morally complex characters is so ridiculous when you actually, you know, pay attention to Tolkien. But, um, anyway, okay. Let us uh, actually move forward. We resume this description of the Company of the Ring, already in progress. Gimli the Dwarf alone wore openly a short shirt of steel rings, for dwarves make light of burdens, and in his belt was a broad-bladed axe. Legolas had a bow and a quiver, and at his belt a long white knife. The younger hobbits wore the swords that they had taken from the barrow, but Frodo took only Sting, and his mail coat, as Bilbo wished, remained hidden. Gandalf bore his staff, but girt at his side was the elven sword Glamdring, the maid of Orcrist that lay now upon the breast of Thorin under the lonely mountain. 
All were well furnished by Elrond with thick, warm clothes, and they had jackets and cloaks lined with fur. Spare food and clothes and blankets and other needs were laden on a pony, none other than the poor beast that they had brought from Bree. Okay. Um, do you notice? We'll get to Bill. We're going to get a whole Bill slide next, right? I'm really looking forward to the Bill slide. Um, but uh, did you notice? Ah, see, Mad Violinist, I think I disagree with you here. I think we can... This is one of the passages I think we might be able to prove who wrote this one. Did you notice? There's... There's, we got Aragorn and Boromir. Then Boromir interrupted, right? So no, we so we got because remember this is the same this is the same passage, right? The company took little gear of war for their hope was in secrecy. Aragorn had Andural but no other weapon, and he went forth clad only in rusty green and brown. Boromir had a long sword in fashion like Andural but of less lineage, and he bore also a shield and his war horn. Digression. Re the war horn, right? And then. Gimli the Dwarf, Legolas, the younger hobbits. But Frodo took only Sting, and his mail coat, as Bilbo wished, remained hidden. I don't know. I don't know. Um, my vote is totally on Sam here. Um because of how absent uh, he is from this. Um, Frodo gets a spotlight here, as is fitting, not only because he's Frodo and the ring bearer, and this is kind of his quest after all. Um, remember, the only question was whether he was going to go on his quest by himself or whether he was going to have any help. So the whole point of the company of the ring is that they're supposed to be company for the ring bearer. So obviously Frodo kind of a you know important right in this whole undertaking yeah i know sam is one of the younger hobbits right but um but that's not even that's not even i don't know it doesn't even seem anyway frodo is frodo gets a spotlight um and his mail coat as bilbo wished remained hidden um which of course obviously sam would have known perfectly well uh, when it came time to write this down. Um, it's the uh, the description of Frodo and the downplaying of the other hobbits. This is a very unequal un, a very unequal description. And the one set uh, that is the one set that is really shortchanged is Merry and Pippin and Sam, right? Gimli gets a sentence, a long sentence, a compound sentence, right? Um, Legolas gets a, a, a compound sentence as well, right? Frodo gets that reference. Gandalf gets a long sentence with some background history, right? Which is all good. Um... And then we just get the younger hobbits wore the swords they had taken from the barrow, but Frodo. <laughs> um, anyway, it's not that important, but um, I, uh, I totally, 
I'm in I'm in Team Sam for this uh, for this paragraph. I think. Um, Lupita thinks that the warm clothes, food, and other preparations needed also sound like Sam. Um, yeah, and the lack of rope, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, not crucial. But it just the, uh, the, the fact that Mary Pippin and Sam are the only ones not mentioned by name, right? It is true that Sam is not necessarily completely absent from this description in that he's one of the younger hobbits. Um, the younger three hobbits, I think. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, and then the emphasis on Bill at the end, but we'll get to Bill. Let's look at the Gimli sentence. Gimli the dwarf, alone, wore openly a short shirt of steel rings, for dwarves make light of burdens, and in his belt was a broad-bladed axe. Okay, so what gets emphasized about Gimli? Remember, we know almost nothing about Gimli. Um, this is only the third reference to him that we get. Um, he was at the council. Wasn't he at the... I think he was mentioned at the council. That's where we, like, first heard his name. Um, and then... Um, and, yeah, but he didn't speak Jurassic. Um So that's where he first gets mentioned. Like, we, we, we meet... We... Well, we re-meet Glowen, right, at the feast with Frodo the night before. And, um, but, like, we don't even know he's got a kid until we see him the next day, but he doesn't say anything. And then we're told that Gimli's going to come in the company. Elrond mentions it, you know, when he's laying out the plan for the company of the ring. Um, but all we know is that he was headed back to the Lonely Mountain and has agreed to take a detour south with them along the way, Right. So we know personally nothing at all about Gimli the dwarf, right? Um, Gimli the dwarf alone wore openly a short shirt of steel rings, for dwarves make light of burdens, and in his belt was a broad-bladed axe. Um, this definitely... Um, uh, this, this definitely has... Um, the very first thing that's emphasized here is uh, his uh, what militant nature, right? Um, not just wearing armor, but wearing it openly, unlike Frodo, right? Um, Frodo's bashful about his short shirt of rings, right? Um, but um, uh, but he he is the only one who wears armor openly, and he has this broad-bladed axe in his belt. That's kind of a reminder. We know that dwarves and axes kind of go together. I guess we kind of know that. Actually, come to think of it, let me... Do we know that? I mean, we know it's not unknown, but let's not forget that Thorin and company had no weapons at all, right? I mean, they didn't have any weapons when they set out on their journey. They forgot to bring anything like weapons. Sor Thorin gets a sword, right, um, along the way, but we don't... 
the only connection between dwarves and axes. I think it's among it. Dan's people wielded mattocks at the Battle of Five Armies. That's what I was recalling, too. But I think some of them had. Did they only use mattocks? I was remembering the mattocks, but I was trying to remember if, if some of them might have had axes as well. In, I mean, in, in the Battle of Five Armies. I mean. Um, yeah. I don't remember axes either. Um, Thorin wielded his axe with mighty strokes and nothing seemed to harm him. When was that, JJ? Was that when he, uh, like during the recap of the Battle of Five Armies afterwards? So Thorin went out with an axe on his death charge, basically? Right, right, right. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. No, exactly. We'll get to the war cry and everything, but um, but we're, we're a long ways from that yet, right? Um, we're a long ways from that yet. So, yeah. Um, sorry, I'm just casting back to try to remember any other references... I'm now thinking pre-Hobbit. Is there anything even in the Silmarillion material, the early Silmarillion material, which is so weird about the dwarves? I mean, that's back when the pre-Hobbit was back when the dwarves were children of Melkor, for crying out loud. Did you know that dwarves were originally bad guys? Yeah, they're pretty despicable back in the day. Um... The Hobbit changed a lot of things. Um, yeah, they 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 got better. Says Ray. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, axes are implied within. Yet they will have need of wood in some ways. Draw snake, but even that passage is written well after um, the Aule and Yavanna passage from the Silmarillion is quite late. Um, yeah, Hurin wields an axe. Yes, he does. Um, at battle axes are known, but I don't think... Um, what's his face? Um, Azakal, when he wounds Glaurung, uses a knife to do it. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway... I hadn't thought of that, but this might be, yeah, you're right, the um, the Argonaut statues have axes, yeah, yeah we got bunches of axes not connected with dwarves in the early, earlier um, legends, hmm, but this might be the broad-bladed axe, and I don't know, I saw someone asking, um, I saw someone asking, what exactly does that mean? Um, is it, it's probably not a two-headed axe. It's probably a, a single-headed axe. Probably. Um, uh, probably. But I don't know exactly. Um, anyway, this is, um, uh, see, Anna says, why do so many people fight with axes? Um, cause they do a lot of damage when you hit someone very hard with an axe. No, I mean, a, a battle axe, there are, there are good um, 
moments of tactical advantage for battle axes and such. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, no, but I think I, the more I think about it, the more I think it is true that this is, this is day one here of the association between axes and dwarves. I can't think of any... I mean, again, Thorin used an axe in battle, but again, so did other people at other times. Um, but as for axes being specifically associated with dwarves, I can't recall any references that would really suggest that. Um, yep, the ants are going to be wary of dwarves because of their axes, but again, that's after this, right? Um, Tolkien's going to retcon it, right? So, I mean... What we will see, it's not just that Gimli uses an axe and Gimli is so cool that from now on dwarves are all like axes are the bomb, right? That's not it. That's not it. Um, it is certainly true that Gimli, you know, in the minds of the reader, Gimli's use of an axe is going to sort of set the tone for dwarves in the future. But Tolkien himself seems to embrace that as we will see, and we'll watch this develop. I think it'll be interesting to watch it develop. Um, but as we as we see it, I think over the course of this story, as the Lord of the Rings goes on, um, he's going to begin to project that backwards more and more until he decides that this axe that Gimli has is the thing that, dwarf, that a dwarf should have. It doesn't just happen to be Gimli's own personal weapon of choice. Um... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Bjorning in Exile is posting a picture of a uh, historical Viking war axe, which is very one-sided, but uh, not a double axe, but very long-bladed. Um, yes. Yes. Um, yeah. That is fascinating. I hadn't even really realized that until we just started talking about that here. But yeah, I can't think... It's just... And notice how seamlessly Tolkien does that, right? By the end of The Lord of the Rings, the idea that obviously dwarves fight with axes is going to become so deeply ingrained that we will all forget that it didn't never happen before, <laughs> right? We're all going to forget that it's a new thing uh, that's being invented here. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yep, yep. Um, Yeah. Um, interesting. But hang on a second. What else should we notice there about... It is not only his warlike nature. right? When Gimli sets out on a journey, he sets out in armor and with a battle axe. Right? Okay. Um, we talked about Aragorn not having armor and how that was totally acceptable. How it's... And we talked about Boromir and his shield. How that, sh you know, having a shield is like a sort of a compromise between wearing armor and not wearing armor, right? Um, you know, when you're on a journey, but you want to be ready for anything. Um, here, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, Matt, you are so correct. Um, uh, Tolkien's establishment of axe-wielding as part of dwarf culture is so effective that Thorin wielding a sword 
is going to be puzzling for players of D&D hereafter. It's so true. I distinctly remember that. Um, I mean, I, I read The Hobbit before I um, played D&D, but then I did play D&D. When I did, I played it a lot for a while. Um, and I remember reading Tolkien again after playing D&D. And I, I remember that moment, Matt, when I'm like, this, the mental image of Thorin wielding a sword. I'm like, weird. A dwarf wielding a sword? Who does that? Like, that's weird. Give him an axe. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, but more. Notice what we... So we, we can think about Gimli as warlike. And again, also, a broad-bladed axe, that's... Um, um, Uh, that's uh, it's a very, it is a particular kind of weapon. That is, it's. I don't think it's very multi-purpose. I don't think you can use that kind of axe to split wood with. Um, now, swords aren't very multi-purpose either, of course. But um, uh, anyway, but but here's my point. What does the narrator emphasize about Gimli's shirt of rings? The narrator tells us explicitly that it tells us something about Gimli, but it isn't that he's warlike. Um, what is it? What is it? What does the narrator emphasize? For dwarves make light of burdens. Yeah. Um, it emphasizes... How, yeah, how sturdy he is, Almerea. Um, how strong he is. Dwarves make light of burdens. Um, why is nobody else wearing armor? Because um, armor is really heavy. You really don't want to go on a long journey wearing armor the whole time. Like, that's really um, heavy <laughs> and cumbersome, right? Um, and... Uh, but he, but he wears it because he doesn't care, right? That's what we learn about Gimli, that he is not bothered. He will not be deterred by the mere weight of his armor. A shirt of steel rings. Now, it's only a short shirt of steel rings, right? Um, it isn't necessarily a full, like, uh, you know, coat of uh, chainmail to the knees or something like that, right? Um so it's like his traveling armor, but still, it's armor and it's really heavy. So how how strong, how enduring he is, um, is what gets emphasized. What gets emphasized about Legolas? What do we learn about Legolas from the Legolas sentence? Legolas had a bow and a quiver, and at his belt a long white knife. Okay, Legolas had a bow and a quiver, and at his belt a long white knife. Hang on a second. What do we not learn about Legolas? That's a long list of things we don't learn about Legolas in this. His hair length! Yes, Drowsnake, that's exactly what we don't learn. How long is his hair? Who knows? Right? Uh, who knows? Um, how pointed his ears are, Anna? We don't know that either. Nothing about the colors of his clothes. Um, uh, nothing about his face. Nothing about his face, his hair, his expressions, 
his demeanor, his, uh, like anything else. All we know, he had a bow and a quiver and at his belt, a long white knife. Just his weapons. Yeah, height, weight, nothing. 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 Um, and I agree, the narrator does seem to make a big deal about the color of his knife. It's kind of weird, right? Now, more when we will learn about his shoes, but we don't yet, right? Later, that will come up, right? And we will be introduced to that, um, we'll be introduced to that bit, right? Um, yeah, he's a strange elf. Yeah, he's a strange elf. That we know. That we were told at first, right? Um, yeah, we don't, um, why is this sword, why is this knife white? We have no idea. A long white knife. What does that even mean? Is the hilt white? Is the scabbard white? Is the blade white? Presumably, I mean, it's at his belt. It's sheathed, presumably. So it's probably not the blade. Sheathed? The sheath? The hilt? Probably the hilt. Right? Um, I, I... It's interesting because I agree with Fortnolis and a couple others who were saying that it seems conspicuous that we're specifically told the color of his knife. But I don't think that ever gets paid off, does it? I don't think we ever learn why it's important that his knife is white. That it's long tells us a little something. What does is, what is the length of his knife tell us? Be good. What does the length of his knife tell us? Um, the length of his knife tells us... Um, yeah, it's for combat and not a tool. Yes. Yeah. Um, it tells us something about how he fights, right? Um, he, his knife is his hand-to-hand -hand weapon, right? Yeah, it probably is similar in size to the Hobbit's swords. Yes, I agree. I agree. Um, he has a bow and a quiver and a long knife. So that tells you he's an archer, right, who tends to fight from a distance, and when enemies get in too close for archery, then he has his... It's it's like a short sword, right? So this is not just like a, you know, the like a knife that he eats with or something like that. This is his hand-to-hand -hand weapon for when enemies come inside his, you know, his bow range, right? So I think we do learn something. I mean, the, and the fact that the bow is listed first helps to support that idea, right? So we, we get a set. Yeah, exactly, Dr. Benway. I'm, of course, also thinking about the... Uh, the knife work that he mentions um, with at Helm's Deep. It's been knife work up here, meaning some of them got up here and I had to fight them with my knife. Um, so we will see that, in fact, um, uh, you know, kind of uh, bearing that out. And yes, Lincoln, it's, it's not a throwing knife or something. Yeah, it's definitely for hand-to-hand -hand combat. I agree. I agree. Um, yes. Um, 
So that's fine. He had a bow and a quiver, and at his belt a long white knife. The only word in that whole sentence that makes no sense is white. I, no, I mean, it's not saying it's nonsensical. I'm just saying, I don't know why it's there. I don't know why we're being told that. It's the only like, specific detail about Legolas at all. We know nothing about his bow. We know nothing about his quiver. Is the quiver on his hip or on his back? Who knows? We're not even told. The knife is at his belt. Um, we, we don't know anything about anything about Legolas, except, again, we gain an understanding of like his fighting style, right? What, um, you know, how Legolas kind of goes about things. But then the only thing, the one idiosyncratic to him, the one personal detail that we get is that his knife is white. Um, yeah. Oh, Green Great Dragon. Yeah, uh, his dad loved white gems in the films. That's in the book, too. It's in the book, too. Um, most of the details in the Hobbit movies are from the books. It's actually true. I, I've said it many times. The Hobbit films deal with the books much, much more closely than the Lord of the Rings films do. By far. By far. Even the sandworms are in there. I mean... The choice of how they manifest them and integrate them into this movie story is absurd, but they're in the book. Totally in the book. Um, anyway. Uh, it seems to be apparently striking to our narrator the whiteness of the knife. I mean, um, yeah, um, Ambrosius of the Spiritual Horns, right, uh, a couple others are directing to that, like, it's something refined, elegant, princely about it, the whiteness of the, um, um, the <laughs> sorry, I'm not trying to start fights about sandworms, like I said, it's silly, ridiculous, what they do with it. But it's inspired by a sentence that's actually in the book. It's, it's, it's there. The wild wereworms of the last desert, they're in the book. But anyway, don't worry about it. Sorry to bring up the memories. Forget Shai Hulud, and this isn't a Chris knife. Um, but, um, uh, but anyway, yeah. Um, elegance, refinement, the whiteness of the knife. I mean, because white is, look, white stuff gets really grungy. Uh, generally, you know, um, uh, there's not a lot of white on Aragorn, right? He's too rascally looking and, and, uh, and, 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 and grungy for that. Um, so yeah, something, and, and I don't even know, Blood the Inspire, exactly how literal white is. Um, uh, I don't know. I, but I think it's not just reflecting. I think it's not just like shiny or something, um. I think it's white. I think it's white. I think it's probably the hilt. Probably. Probably the hilt. That's white. Um, Almerea, that's exactly where I was kind of vaguely, what I was vaguely moving towards. 
Um, is he like the we- uh, is he like the weapon maybe untested or untouched by battle? Um, yeah, is there something kind of um, uh, I don't know untried but also kind of untainted about Legolas? Right? Is there a kind of innocence? I, that seems a big step to take, but um, but possibly the link back to the white gems that his father likes. That's in the book. That's in the Hobbit. Um, uh, so it could be we do have a whiteness connection there back to, to the Elven King, his father, whom now he did get named already. Thranduil. Yeah, yeah. How did the people of Thranduil fail in their trust? Yeah, yeah, he's been named now. Um, so we have a whiteness association with Thranduil with his preference for white gems. Um, so, um, yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm not trying to put a whole lot onto the white knife, Dr. Benway. I'm just, but do you see what I mean? It's the only, it's the o- literally the only thing we learn about Legolas. I mean, okay. Bow fighter who uses a, a short sword slash long knife at short range. But that's pretty generic, right? Apart from like what his fighting style is, there's, there's not, uh, about Legolas, who, who is he as a person? What is his character like? What's his personality like? We, we, we learn almost nothing about Legolas in this sentence. The whiteness of his knife is the only idiosyncratic detail at all. That's why I'm focusing on it, because there was no need to say that. There was no need to draw any attention to that. If all he was doing in this sentence was just establishing Legolas Archer, okay? But if people get in close, he's got a knife, so don't worry. Like If that was the only point of this sentence, there's zero reason to mention the color of his knife. Right. Um, but he does mention the color of his knife. So what does that tell us? Anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a strange knife to you. Well, he's a strange elf. So there you go. Strange knife for a strange elf. Um, it's possible that he was going to expand on this later in some way, but for, uh, but you know, forgot about it or cut it for brevity. Yeah, it's possible. It's possible. Um, uh, it's very like I said. I don't think that de- this detail is ever going to pay off. I don't think it is. Maybe years from now we will notice a reference to the whiteness of his knife, which will make this all clear in retrospect. But uh, but I don't think so. Okay, then we've got we've got. Then we no, we don't have anything because it's time to go. So we did Gimli and Legolas, and that was excellent work. Plus, we did the prophecy and finished Boromir. So there was there was Boromir thing to finish, and then we did both Legolas and Gimli. So there we go. And we didn't know anything about these characters, and now we know still almost nothing about these characters. Oh wait, what color is Gimli's hair? Oh gosh, we have no idea. Um, okay, well, again, we're not again, notice what we don't get. What we don't get, right? I mean, just Tolkien not interested in any of these things. Okay, but I'll let you guys go. Uh, field trip time. Before you go. I'm not going to be here next week. So no class next week uh, because um, there's no class next week. Um, I'm going to be away. Uh, it's a school vacation for my son. So uh, family trip uh, next week. So I will be away next week, but I will be back the week after. Uh, so that will be Tuesday the 8th of March then will be our next uh, uh, our next session. Uh, but stick around for the field trip uh, if you uh, if you would like to. And thanks to everybody else for coming.
computer screen always has a hard time with this transition. Okay, there we go. And unfortunately, Valori is ill again this week. She's been having a horrible time. Of course, one of the problems is she has young kids. So this is, um, as my sister-in-law used to say, germs in footed pajamas. Uh, so she's ill again this week. Um, but we shall uh, continue on without her. Um, and uh, yes. Druid's Fire... Yes, good here, evening. Here, here, here you are. Again. I have a very good friend uh, who used to work on Star Wars The Old Republic who once referred to his uh, then five-year-old daughter as a germ warfare factory. So, yeah. He That's gets it. Up. That's it. Yeah. So, poor Valoria has fallen to that again. Um, but we will see. Um, okay. Um, should I'm we inbound. travel first and then uh, form up after? or? We can do that either way. Um, question for you, though, is where do you want to go? There is a new area we can explore. There is, but I'm a completionist. i got to finish Mirabelle. Mm -hmm. I'm going to lose my thread. You know, like I'm, okay. I'm, I'm getting the layout of Mirabelle. That I'm excited to see the new place. But mm -hmm. um, we'll get there. We'll get there. In two weeks. That'll be fine. A couple weeks. Well... I doubt we'll finish Mirabelle this week, but we'll see soon. Very soon. As soon as we finish here. I'm optimistic. As soon as we finish here. Okay. So here we are back in the milestone, which is in the, uh, uh, oh, that's right. I can't go out that door. Um, in the event space, right? Mm-hmm. The function hall up on the hill. And I'm thinking, where am I wanting to look? Okay. So at the library thing is over there, right? That's the library, the school. That's it, the school. Okay. Those are the so I'm borders. actually looking the opposite direction of the school. So let me go out the other way to see over to the... Ah, oh, there it is. There it is. Okay, so that's where we went last time to the school. Can we go out this way? No, we can't go out this way at all. I can go out to this... I didn't go to this balcony. Oh. This is lovely. Okay, so the balcony. Yes. Oh, yeah. So there's the Ford down there. Mm -hmm. And we've got the two levels of path. We've got the nearer path, which goes up to the refreshment area. There it is, down there. And then we've got the lower path, which goes around and then winds up to the refreshment area um, and goes down to that bridge, which we haven't explored yet. Okay. And then we can see over to the school with the statues of Gilgawad, as we saw last time. And you can, now that it's not dark and we're seeing from a distance, we can see the overall shape, though. So many broken arches on the top of the building there um, make me wonder how much taller it used to be. That because is definitely a very good question. It's possible that there was like some kind of roof, maybe even a wooden roof above those arches and that was you know the peaks that we're seeing about on those broken arches is kind of the you know um the top roughly the top where it would have been right um mm -hmm. but um yeah yeah um okay sure sure um all right and what direction am i facing i'm facing east Okay. Ish. So, is there anything past that? There's nothing past that, right? The school? That's the edge over there? Mm, well, there's stuff beyond it. There's uh, non-elven uh, currently used residences. What? Currently used? Who's living over there? Bad guy. Oh, bad 
guys. Let me see. Right. Yeah, further along, closer to um, okay. the river. So, all right. Well, let's go out. So this is the way we went last time. And that path down there, and I'm starting doing the same thing again, where I'm just, like, running. And there's no reason I should run. Okay. Um, all right. So that's the road that goes down to the ford. And then it zagged up the, up that isolated hill to where the school is. And there was no other road down from there, right? It just dead-ended up to the door? Correct, as far as I'm aware. Ooh, and I didn't go into the school, did I? No, because that would we'd have to dissolve the raid in Rissa, right. yes. Yeah, three men. That's right. Okay. It has, yep. I'm sorry. And as I but as I recall though, the instances here in Mirabelle are not very architecturally revealing. Well, I think we took you into the forges. The forges are pretty amazing. But it's yeah, the forges a lot are... of it's more of the same. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So now I haven't been in school in a while. So, all right. So we had the road that came down from the school, and it goes up to the function hall, and then it swoops around this way. So now it's swooping around this way, and we're seeing something off. There's Tralalalali Land, right? In the distance there? That's the amusement park? Pretty yeah, sure to, the, to the north, to the northeast north, of like us, northeast. yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's sure. what that is. Yeah, so that's Tralalalali Land. But then in the in the uh, foreground here, um, yeah, Drasnik, I, uh, I I say tralalalali land on purpose. It's like an exercise, right? Because I tend I have a speech impediment, a small speech impediment. It's gotten better over my lifetime, and L's are my are my like uh, my worst thing. Um, so it's it's like I, I I like to keep in training, right? It's a, it's a personal challenge to say that name. Um, but anyway, okay, so we've got some ruins in the foreground here, which look pretty similar to the ruins we've seen in so many other places. What I'm trying to figure out is what that... T it looks like this place was... No, we still haven't found anywhere where anybody lived. Okay, nope. so we're, com we're coming from the school, and we come around the corner, and here... Now, if we continue up these stairs, we go back to the function hall, right? Correct. Okay, so we don't need to do that. Instead, we come down here. We swoop down around here. So this is to, to our left, the hill. All of these paths have been circling the hill with the function hall on top, which is Correct. still the tallest. It's taller than the, at the, when we were at the school. We were still, yeah, we were still looking up at the top, the big old gazebo at the top of the function hall hill, right? Okay, fine. So what's over here? We, we I want to go down there at some point, but... It all seems frightfully spread out. Oh, here's the, um, here's that, uh, lookout, little paved, strangely paved, um, overlook here. Right, so we're still getting a whole lot of nothing just circling the hill around here. So let's go down the path then. We've got this big old column. Do you think there was an arch? Or was it just a column? Did it, it was like a column with a statue on it or something? Possibly a statue. I mean, the at least the two columns that we're seeing here were powerful enough to have some kind of statuary on them. Yeah, I mean, they're big old columns. It's interesting. They're not round. They're like rectangular with rounded ends. They're rhombus. Yeah, exactly. Right. Oh, those. This looks like more one of those mini towers. Pillars. 
Yeah. Yeah. Thomas is such a cool word, though. Yeah. But yeah, it doesn't seem like. Um, whereas, like, this is a tower. This is a legitimate tower with no door in any way. And solid. I mean, based on the broken bit down here, it's solid rock. What did they do that for? Why on earth are they. There's not even a. Maybe it was a beacon. A solid tower. Okay, maybe. Maybe. Um, weird. It doesn't look like it was it's like um, a gazebo on top or any sort of watch post or something. But no, it no, could have been a watch post, but, you know, else would have been very clever to climb up it without a ladder. Get up like a rope ladder or something? I mean, that's just... Well, that would make sense. I mean, if it were a defensive structure, sure. But I'm telling you, I don't think I've ever, ever, ever seen a city less well-designed for defense than this one. I mean, Gwingaris, we were talking about looking at how decorative the wall was, right? Because mm -hmm. it looked like this, you know? Um, right, exactly. Which is not exactly keeping anybody out anytime soon. Um, but um, this doesn't even have walls. I mean, this one little mini wall here is not part of a longer wall. You know, this is not like what it, what remains even of a wall. This is a little patch of, this might have been a building here, right? We might be indoors looks like it so this looks like a building maybe maybe somebody lived here maybe we have an actual residence it might have been a long wall linking like this one place down to the one down here because they're right. almost on the line possibly kind of sort of and if we you know we're imagining the river having water in it right Mm -hmm. um, then this would be, you know, alongside that, you know, we'd have this nice, like, set of arches along the, um, along the bank of the river, and you could Absolutely. still stroll between the river and the, uh, and, and the wall, uh, so that's a plus, again, little coracle or something, 5,000 years, so the course of the river might have changed, and, um, like, this bank needn't even have been as wide, or maybe it was wider, who knows. Um, well, if you the, think about... But the bridge is there, so, you know, the bridge... Yeah, uh, I was just thinking about the bridge and how, kind of like the Brandywine Bridge is like, how can that thing be that many thousands of years old? It can't. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, Noldor construction. It, it well, I don't know. Advanced technology. Sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from elf magic. <laughs> That's if it. magic, you would call it. That's it. Okay. All right. So this is the first time I'm feeling vaguely like I'm in a city, just standing here and looking around me. I'm seeing buildings every direction I'm looking, which has not been the case ever here. Everywhere, only across the river is there nothing, which is fine. River, boundary. So that's fine. So we cross the river. This is the road from Moria. So mm -hmm. we're coming in, and what do we get here? We get an arch, a big old arch, sort quasi-arch, two posts with a thing in between them, not precisely an arch. And then we've got a something up here. What is Colonnade. this? A pool? A, looks like a wading pool. It does. It's like a little elven kitty pool. Um... 
It doesn't belong like it like it would be on top of anything. Except um, not even that pillar over there. No. It certainly doesn't look like it fell off of anything. And it has plants growing in it, which suggests it's not solid stone. So it was probably more metal. hollow and has filled with uh, dirt over time. Mm-hmm, that would make sense. Yeah. Okay. So. Elven birdbath of some kind? A little, maybe, maybe it was like the remains of a fountain? Birdbath. Could be a fountain. Could be a fountain. So this looks, this was definitely a building. Ooh, plausible denial in Twitch chat says, a large seeing mirror. Whoa. That would be There's a thought. Cool. Whoa. That would be... And it's like concave in a weird way. I don't think it could be a mirror. It would be... Um, I mean, unless it were like a, you know, a large refraction mirror or something like that. Um, or mirror galadriel kind of deal, but on a bigger scale yeah i don't think it's the top of a gazebo i really don't yeah there's First nothing all, we haven't seen like... any with that flat atop they've all been just like roundly domed right yeah, exactly um, it doesn't look like it's toppled like upside down or anything this looks like yeah a bowl uh, that somebody a god's bowl that somebody's tossed on the ground yeah i think fountain is more likely though why would you put it right next to this boulder so that you could jump off the boulder and cannonball into the pool. Maybe it was deeper than it looks back in the day. Maybe it's know. their version of mirroring the uh, uh, thingy. Oh, right. Yeah, so you jump off into the pool. No water slides mm -hmm. here. It's not quite as cool, but it's still... Yeah. Yeah, maybe. But this was definitely a building. Um, and, of course, we've often seen the kind of clear story um, on the second story of these ruins, mm -hmm. which I didn't think necessarily meant a two-story building, but this could be a two-story building, um, especially given the similarity. And this one end where the the two prongs coming up from the windows are clearly hooking inward. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was arched it's over. It's definitely yep. up mm -hmm. there. Yeah. And then the one down here by you. Right, right. So yeah, I, I do think, right, there it is. I do think this was a building of some sort with the fountain, the fountain likely, out in front. Um, mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, who's, who are, what mobs are nearby here? I saw Carbine, are there Dunlendings near here? Yes, there are Dunlendings. There's some Angmarim closer to the river. Oh, okay, okay. And some, you um, know, Oh, there are half orcs. Okay, great. Oh, yeah, yes. there are half orcs up in, up in the amuse the amusement park, as I recall. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, there's an Angnorum soldier over here. All right. Okay, so this is right off to the side. Somebody's house. Maybe some kind of welcome spot. Um, you know, maybe your um, hotel, right? Come, right come refresh yourself coming. after your long journey across yeah, the river. yeah. Right, put down your bags, have a bath. Um, you know, friend from uh, friend from Moria, uh, excuse me, Hazadum, excuse me, Hathadrond. Um, and then you come in, and we've got another big old honking 
pillar, rhombus pillar like the other one. And then over here we've got this inexplicably solid tower. I want to say that's probably a beacon or a watchtower of some kind. Deeply weird. I don't believe they had watchtowers. I really don't. More of a, you know, town crier kind of watchtower. You know, calling, kind of like the the Muslim tradition of calling to prayer. Something like that? It'd be what? Call to, uh... um, They they had somebody up there to, like, you know, read poetry on the hour or something like that. A call to party. There you go. Exactly. Exactly, Almaria. That's it. That's it. Okay. So then we continue down this way and... What do we have? So this over here was a, another building, probably. I still think with the turn in the wall there, that this is probably another building. So it is, these things are set really far apart. Even assuming this was yet another entire building. Yeah, here's another chunk of it down here. So probably there's a corner. Um, yeah, oh, those are not ruins those are in fact mobs right those are the Angmarim soldiers all mm-hmm. standing there creepily staring at us like the children of the corn or something in this field but um anyway children of the hand yeah they're the children of well, and like the children the ch- of the eye for the Angmarim oh, they're like the children of the little purple flowers but um okay so we come around the corner now we're seeing we can't really see the function hall up on top though we can see some evidence that something is there we can begin to see across the river the big building that's there across the river so there's bigger fancier buildings across the river the school is not visible at all it's way off you've got to go all the way around the hill of the Mm -hmm. uh, uh of the function hall to see the to see the school and i don't see but the forges are really the thing here, especially when Kilabrimbor made right. buddies with Anatar. I'm sorry, Anathethron. Anathron right. is oh, what yeah. Lotro yeah. calls him? Yes, he who shall not be called Anatar because we don't have the licensing rights. Yes. Well, Standing Stone doesn't anyway. They don't have That's permission. Yeah, yeah. They don't have an exception either. Yes. But um, we'll get into that tomorrow, won't we? <laughs> you kind of get the impression that... The new rights deal somewhat less restrictive than the old one, but um, anyway, anyway, we've seen this pattern, this lovely pattern before. This was clearly a gazebo down by the river, but mm-hmm. again, there's uh, there's no evidence, there's no obvious evidence that this wasn't standing in a field then too, right? Um, so I I agree with who was saying this before um maybe it was um uh it was a draw snake i'm not remembering um was saying that uh with the city being sort of open like this um there being these long spaces in between it just made for like pleasant walks between things like they they would have had no need no desire to make them all packed in together right um and this uh this gazebo down here by the river certainly would seem to support that idea um so you've got the uh let's imagine that the place with the fountain was a nice little hostelry uh right on the other side of the bridge right so there's a place you could you you know weary travelers could uh could rest right away 
But other than that, you're strolling, right? You're strolling. You've passed maybe two buildings after that. And now you're coming around. As you say, Druid's Fire, the major focus is across the bridge, and that's what we get. Mm -hmm. We got the first big bridge, right? Yes. A few buildings, and then we're coming around, and we come to here. We have already had the option to go straight up to the event space, right? But now here's another road up to the event space. And now, of course, the invitation to cross the bridge over to the other side. We now, across. We're going to... It's getting late, so I should probably mm -hmm. settle for finishing this side of the river today. Um, but we're going to have to study some things from over here, aren't we? Well, we will have to go into the instance to be able to go over there. Okay. Well, next time, we'll start off by seeing what we can see from this side. And then we will... Um, uh, and then we'll go into the instance and see what we see in the instance. But... Um, yeah. Okay. All right. Very good. Thanks everybody for, um, uh, thanks everybody for joining me this week. I think we'll, we'll, we'll stop here so we can let people go more or less on time today. Um, but, uh, thanks everybody, um, uh, for joining me and I will see you guys. So don't forget 4 PM tomorrow on Wednesday is my new discussion of Tolkien adaptation. Uh, and, uh, we'll talk, lay some general groundwork and stuff and get ready uh, for some uh, uh, new discussions we're going to be having there. And then, of course, I'm doing my uh, tomorrow night. I'll be doing Mythgard Academy as usual. So thanks, everybody. Uh, thanks for joining me, Druid's Fire. And uh, we'll see everybody, uh, not next week, but we'll see everybody two weeks from tonight. Fortnite. That's right. Bye now. <laughs>